right, ladies and gentlemen, he's Tim Johnson. I'm Chris Ruddick. We are here for Love of Code, talking about all things software, current events, opinionated commentary, a little bit of witty banter. These episodes are brought to you by the amazing Prime 3 software, where Tim and I help our customers on a daily basis figure out how to become more efficient and effective using software. How's it going, Tim? Making it, man. Just survived a thunderstorm. That's the beauty of this time of year. Uh, you can expect one just about every time of this day, every day of the week. Hey guys, this is Tim. We uh, had a little technical difficulties and lost some of the audio for part of our show. Um, so I'd just like to fill you in on what, what we uh, discussed. Um, we discussed uh, how it seems to always rain when we go to Disney uh, various times um, and how predictable that seemed to be uh, during certain parts of the day and if for those of you who live in Florida probably can attest to that um, I also mentioned the new PS5 announcement Chris then mentioned that he still has his PS3 and his sole reason for having it was so he could have a blu-ray player um, that was for a period of time the cheapest blu-ray player you could get the file format was new and they were entrenched in a battle with HD DVD as a format of the future um since you since many of you have never heard of hd dvd you probably can guess which one won uh chris enjoys playing uh, rocksmith which was kind of like rock band but um gave you the capability to actually plug in and play real instruments which i had never heard of uh, we talked about the cost um their speculation was going to be about 750 bucks or something around there um and that they have a new architecture um, and, they, and there are stories out there that developers might have to rework some of their games because uh, at the speed at which the uh, data is retrieved now, you don't have to have these cut scenes uh, that are famous for some of these high-res games um, and things of that nature. Um, and then we started getting onto a discussion about how powerful the original Xbox and the PS3 used to be. Um, for, for the time that, that there might have been a trade embargo not allowing uh, the export of the Xbox because the processor was so uh, good. And now we return you back to uh, the content. Um, the PS3 was the same platform that Virginia Tech built uh, the first Linux-based supercomputer out of no, a bunch of PS3s. It wasn't PS3s. It was um, Macintosh. They, they took a like a thousand Macintoshes. Oh, now, took them all now, apart. now you're making me do Google because I swear it was uh, some PS4s no, I, um, I, I, or PS3. Specifically remember this one. You were there Maybe, then, uh, weren't you? Uh, I might have been or might have just left. Huh. I don't know. There's Seemed one like here in 2010 did. that the Air Force connected 1,700 PS4s to build a supercomputer. Yeah, I mean, when you compare the cost of a true supercomputer to a, uh, I'll say, a RAID-type supercomputer, it's 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 orders of magnitudes cheaper. And that's what they proved out. I think tech um, developed the software so that they could distribute the processing across multiple different platforms in that way. But yeah, they, they were, for a time... Um, I believe they they were pretty high up in the top computing environments. Yeah, it did make the top fifty. Um, I'm looking at yeah, it might be Mac. I knew it was something 
special that there was something unique about it that hadn't been done before well it wasn't um wasn't the oculus rift wasn't that originally designed to be a like a um a vr video game platform and whatever happened with that it, it is a vr platform um well, I know so... it's vr but like i thought it was when it was before they got bought I, I thought they were trying to make it a gaming platform and i've never seen really anything come of it since their acquisition oh you haven't been paying attention <laughs> it's it's that big uh, so my so so for for christmas slash birthday slash i think father's day the kids and the wife well i should say the family got me uh oculus quest um so oculus being owned by facebook um the oculus quest is a all detached wireless version of vr um and it is phenomenal now from what I can tell based on some of the reviews and stuff, it's not as good as the Oculus. I think it's the Rift, um, but the Oculus Rift needs a computer to render all the uh, graphics and stuff. So the quality um, is going to be significantly better on the, um, on the Rift the benefit of the quest you're not tethered to anything you also don't need from my understanding the the rift you it needed also external um cameras set up in the room to kind of so you tell it where your 3d space is the quest comes with cameras on the uh, mounted on the outside of the of the screen so there's even a there's even a feature that i, I forget what it's called pass through or something like that that you get a black and white version that's just a half a second delayed that you can, you can, you could walk around with these things on your face mm. is what I'm getting at. Now I wouldn't drive a car and I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't try and fight somebody with them on. In what way though? Like an augmented reality type? Um, or? well, I mean, effectively they do provide you an augmented reality. So, um, they let you, um, define your space. So I could literally, like I could come bring the Oculus Quest in the office and use the use the wand or whatever to virtual paint on the ground what my safe zone is. And so as and you're doing that with the goggles on, but the but the um the cameras are on. So you can actually see the real world and you're painting an augmented reality and it throws a grid up to so you can see like, hey, is there anything inside the grid that I'm gonna bump into? And as you play the game, as you get closer to that area where you've said, this is my safe zone, as soon as you start coming up to, towards the not safe zone, that grid pops up in front of your face uh, in game. So it keeps you from hitting anybody or hitting anything as you walk around. I don't know if anybody's seen these <laughs> these VR um, uh, videos where, videos, where yeah. people are like falling out of chairs and everything else. I mean, they're absolutely... Uh, hilarious if you haven't seen any of them but it prevents you and then i've seen people smack each other in the face and stuff like that this in theory keeps you from doing that um well not smack if you walk in somebody's you know safe space be prepared to get smacked in the face but um <laughs> yeah i mean it's cool. it's neat like my neighbor's kid um we talked uh quite a bit about the system because he actually went and 
spent all his lunch money or whatever <laughs> and got one. He's in college, but he was, he was grilling me about whether or not his laptop was going to be powerful enough to run it because you can, uh, it's running. Um, I think it's running a version of Android. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's a, it, you get, I mean, it's not the, I want to, I, I won't say it's the greatest of quality, um, in comparison to some of the rift videos and stuff that I've seen. Um, cause it's not like 4k, I think it's 1080p, um, signal wise, but, um, you can sideload, um, excuse me, some of these games, um, from, I think it's steam. And so you can get some of the games that are designed to run on the computer to actually run on your headset. But that's, that then requires you still to though, to have a plug into the computer. It's not remote. The uh, remote one, it, it can't send the data fast enough. So the capabilities there, but the performance isn't. So you end up getting this real laggy experience. And really the only way to fix it is to plug that cable in. And it's like, uh, I mean, you need, you almost need like a 20 foot cable to run from your computer in order to do this thing. But it's like the, uh, the telephone cord in your mom's house. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So would you say the gaming industry, uh, drives innovation more than, I mean, what other industries really drive these kinds of new innovations? I don't know you want to answer this question. Well, I know, I know, I'll, I'll say it starts adult, with a P. Adult content, uh, typically, 100%. Uh, they're, they're out in front. Um, I mean, I can, I can tell you that they were the, so if for people who don't remember, um, so Chris, Chris referenced getting the PS3 to get a Blu ray player. Um, I also did the same thing because it was the cheapest at the time. It was the cheapest Blu-ray player you could get. And oh, by the way, you with could play wi- video games with a Wi-Fi connection. And it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but they had a. The reason that is is because they had a competing standard, which was called HD D- DVD, um, and that the adult industry uh, went with. And so you had the adult industry propping the HD DVD up. Because they had to, the reason that was is because the standard had to change very, very little for them to use their current technology. And Sony had produced Blu-ray and Blu-ray cost, there was a licensing fee associated with it and everything else. So a lot of people were turned off by by Blu-ray because Sony, it was a money grab of sorts. And so the way Sony was able to basically squash the HD DVD uh, format pretty much for good, kind of like between this is going way back beta versus VHS. Um, Sony, um, Sony basically said, Hey, we're putting Blu-ray in our, um, place uh, in our playstations. And that's how they won that war is by just, they put more units out, um, of higher quality. And that also became a selling factor between Xbox at the time was only doing standard DVD. They weren't even supporting HD DVD. If you wanted an HD DVD player, you had to go pay another 300 bucks to get an yeah. attachment. You plug it in the side. Yeah. Yep. I remember that. And it was like, nah, who wants that when you can just do Blu-ray and it's all together. So, um, but go ahead. You were talking about innovative well, technology. Just, like I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, like what industries drive innovation? I see, um, I would say banking, uh, in terms of, um, like secure transactional, uh, and real time trading, like have, have you seen the shortage of cobalt developers they still need? <laughs> that's government. That's the difference. Uh, uh, that's that's banking too. Like I, uh, a former DBA coworker of mine used to work for Bank of America, 
And he said when they took over these, as they gobbled up these smaller and smaller uh, banks and stuff, they they had to consume all their bad code or mm -hmm. whatever that code was, convert them over to whatever platform they were using. And a lot of it was written in Cobalt. Well, I'll say like in terms of security, yeah, banking has been out in front of other industries I've worked in because you kind of want to make sure you're sending money to the person you think you're talking to. Like that's, you know, rule number one of transactional work. Um, I don't know. I, having worked in the defense industry, I just see how long it takes to, to, um, to move, um, I'll say projects into the hands of the users. And I wouldn't, wouldn't say they're really leading the forefront of innovation over there. Uh, now that's generalizing obviously. Um, but I don't know. I mean, in terms of, of allies, pretty good. The, what's that? Allies, pretty good. You know, they've, oh, they, bank. yeah, they, they took, they took the, uh, the idea of, uh, mobile banking or I don't need a brick and mortar store. Mm -hmm. Um, and they've, they've done a lot of, I think, innovative things over there. The auto industry is trying to catch up. I mean, I wish they would apply. I think they have it in the new newer Corvettes where they've got like heads up display in the, in the windshield. So you can, you know, it'd be kind of cool if you could just put the, my, my, my speedometer in my line of sight. I, I don't know if that makes a windshield cost like $5,000 now, but no, it doesn't. So they use the same technology they do for teleprompters. Um, and it's technology that came out in the eighties. Huh. Um, cause I think the Buick Skylark or something like that in the eighties used to have it. Oh. And I think the, and I, some of the Cadillacs used to have it too. Um, and people were complaining cause it was in their, they, they couldn't see. So they, it made, they made it go away. So it was like, wow. Well, the people driving the Buick Skylark are up here driving like yeah. this. Yeah. I could well, see it could be, it could around. be too, that the technology of the time, like the idea was sound, but, but the implementation was, was poor cause they were still using, um, you know, LCD kind of the same, the same type of uh, technology that's in like your traditional, um, calculator, uh, your calculator. <laughs> and, um, what am I thinking? The, your alarm clock and stuff. Yeah. So there, so uh, some of it could have been have something to do with that, or it could have just been a feature that nobody asked for having the ability to turn it off. I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say some of these features come and go and it's like, why, why didn't they stay? For example, my van used to have, and I thought it was the coolest thing, uh, earlier generation had uh, a little um, handle of sorts that would open up in the back in between the driver's seat and the or the driver's row and the passenger row that allowed you to put a plastic bag in for trash. It basically, it was a little little ring that came out and you stuffed in a, you know. A, Which would be highly helpful for... Yes. It's People gone. Doesn't exist. Vans. <laughs> Doesn't exist you, anymore. They took it out. You're around little humans who make lots yes. of trash. Yes. Yeah. So I, I can only think that it, it got broke off a number of places and people got well, tired I'll of it. about the auto industry. It. Like my, my truck has um, got maybe eight computers in it. I mean, it, it's got, I mean, the whole dashboard, I've got so many things that I can uh, switch between diagnostics and this, that, and the other thing. But if the check engine light comes on, there's no way for me to just for it to tell me what the code is or why the check engine light is on. You're low on coolant, man. 
probably <laughs> you know, the gas door is open, but I'm not yep. going to go to the dealer and spend $200 to get that diagnosed when the truck knows what the problem is and has all the means to tell me what the problem is. That, that, that's why it exists that way, man. You got, um, I'm, you got well, a reason I'm, to go there. I'm fully aware. I'm fully aware. And then they'll try to sell me on new air for my tires or whatever, whatever other issues might pop up. Yep. That, that makes me think about, um, so, so it's interesting. Um, so this is somewhat, uh, code related, uh, as well. This idea of, um, um, right to fix. Um, so the idea is, is uh, so, I mean, it's a big movement right now. So, uh, and I'll talk to you in terms of, of the, the example, um, that I just saw Tesla produces their car. Mm-hmm. They send out a software update that then bricks a car that you've purchased that is no longer supported by Tesla um, for one reason or another. They send out a software update that prevents you from using their supercharged network. Um, you paid for the car. You're driving the car. You're taking all responsibilities of the car because they want to, for whatever reason, they've decided, Hey, um, we don't want you, uh, using our supercharged station anymore. Here's your update. And now your car is effectively bricked. Um, uh, Sonos was doing the same thing. I think they're gen one and gen two, um, speakers. Uh, they no longer want to support them because they weren't going to be able to take whatever the, whatever OS update was going to need for Sonos speakers. And they were literally sending out, uh, kill signals to people with older speakers and they were literally bricking a, an actual functioning system. They just bricked it. So what's the movement to is, is the right to maintain your own equipment. So hmm. I just watched a, a YouTube, one of my YouTube guys, his name's rich rebuilds. He became famous. If like, he's even made on Joe Rogan podcast because he bought a, a, uh, um, trashed, um, Tesla, actually a did, couple of them. I did listen to that one. Yeah. And, yeah. um, he built, he rebuilt it and, um, drives that car around today. Well, he's continued that effort. And because of the popularity of his YouTube, uh, reclaim or, um, uh, wrecked Tesla's now, like he bought his for almost nothing. Um, but now he's like complaining because you know, the insurance company won't insure them. So they just, they, uh, what it total them. And so when he goes to buy one that, you know, they're 30, 40, 50 grand for a wrecked Tesla. And he's like, I, this, this business model doesn't work anymore for me right. to, to do this. Um, he since started his own repair shop for electric cars. Well, he's one of the first, he, he's only, he's the only one on the East coast and he's getting ready to start open a second one. So if you have a Tesla that is out of warranty, because of whatever, or you've bought one of these wrecked ones, Tesla won't fix it for you. They won't even acknowledge you exist. They're even sending out kill signals to prevent you from being on there to, to plug into their network, um, for charging, um, because they can't assure that it's, that it's functioning correctly. So you've got th these people that are saying, Hey, I have a car. There is nothing wrong with my car. Please let me take care of my car. Um, there's, a. I mean, wasn't, wasn't Tesla the, 
didn't they like open source a fair amount of the technology that they they put into the the platform maybe I, early on i i don't recall that i don't I mean, know I, I thought they were very open about um sharing information and, and making sure that you know doing this for a grander purpose and i guess maybe maybe that all changes when you have shareholders i don't yeah, know I'm, I, that i don't know about um i know they're very they're very tight on making sure and i could see it from a business perspective you want to maintain you know anytime a tesla wrecks or anytime a tesla's involved in anything they um you know the news media jumps all over it so you know from that aspect i can see wanting to uh control that that message but if you your truck right now if you wanted to put new tires on it uh put a put a you know supercharger and a blower on it change the exhaust you could you can you can make all the tweaks to your car you want tesla you can't because it, they're they're managed by them in in this country um i know there's there are protections for the consumer that um do not obligate you to a follow-on purchase. So if you buy something, if I go down the street and I buy, um, I don't know, give me an example. Like I, like I buy a, I buy a truck. I go down, go down the street and I buy a truck. I'm not in any way obligated to continue using that dealer or that company for anything further. Now. I'm trying to draw an analogy here to see where this kind of feels weird because you're still using their infrastructure. Do you do you do you pay to supercharge at places? Um, I think if you're a warranty, I think that comes with the thing. But they've, I mean, people have tried to pay Tesla directly. Like, hey, I, I would like the right to you know charge me whatever you want to use just so I can charge up my damn car. Yeah. Um, so, but that, like I said, they're, they're doing that, but the, the latest post this guy had, he had a, the brand new Tesla model threes. Um, he has one with a performance package and that performance package is a software tweak. Yeah. All the technology exists in the car today. And it's right. basically an on off switch. Yeah. You have to pay $2,000 to Tesla to get them to turn that on off switch back. So his company is, uh, producing modifications i don't know how they're modifying it but they're jailbreaking or whatever the technology and they have um they, they're providing software tweaks I, I imagine it's not two grand worth um well, but they no, but but they had a so what they did was they had one that was a performance tuned by tesla that you paid your two grand for and then one that was a generic that they had their tweak on and the one that was the generic that had the tweak on outpaced the uh the tesla produced one um every time like one time the guy's like i'm even gonna go first and so they went three two one and the guy took off and the and the the generic one with the upgrade eventually ended up passing him well i mean i think we we talked about this before like the diversity of thought leads to ultimately a better experience like if, if i mean how many there, there are thousands of hundreds of thousands of Tesla engineers, right? Yeah. Well, but you know, it's still, and that's why I'm a huge fan of open source in general is that the broader community will always come to a better product than a, a subset of that community. And, um, any company would be, uh, 
you know, there, there are certainly risks that come with that. Right. And I can see that from Tesla's perspective say, Oh, you know, we don't want these untested changes. I mean, you, you heard the same debate about these, um, these aftermarket chips you could put into your vehicle to like boost the horsepower by, you know, however many. Exactly. Hundred. That's the, that's your right exactly to repair. Right. And there, you know, there was a huge effort to shut that down and, I don't know where that stands, but coming all back to it, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know. I feel like trying to shut down innovation. Like I'll, I will, I will channel my inner Dr. Ian Malcolm. Like nature finds a way. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, people are going to find a way to hack. I mean, that's that's our nature, and. Um, the, the more you rail against it, the harder people rail back and it's a losing endeavor. And I mean, ask the record industry how well that worked out for them. Yeah, well, the, the right to repair goes beyond just, you know, Tesla's and that they don't have uh, a secondary market for repairs and parts. Um, that's 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 an aspect of this right to repair. But you've got, like I mentioned, Sonos. Why brick, why brick a perfectly functioning set of speakers because you don't want apple to support it, it anymore. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Apple's another one of those one of those groups. So, they, so I think the advocates break it, but they'll like degrade the experience so yeah. much that you I mean, that's Phone, that feels shady too. Phones like basically all this stuff seems to be circled around and I and I plead ignorance on everything about this. So if anybody has more information, feel free to share. Um but this all seems to be centered around software. Like, so if you're going to produce an iPhone and it's no longer supported, make the, so their argument would be make the operating system, make whatever that technology is to make that run that you're no longer supporting, make it available so somebody else can support it. But that then introduces trade secrets and things of that nature that software companies don't want to share like Apple, like Tesla, like, um, you know, uh, Samsung for their televisions that they're no longer going to support. All these things that if it wasn't for a computer or something, hey, my, my dishwasher broke. I need to go get a new pump. Nothing stops you from that other than the availability of the pump. Now, if, if the uh, secondary market wasn't making those pumps or, you know, somebody took apart a brand new one and, and made the pump themselves, um, you know, that's okay. But now, uh, because it's software, Hey, we're not going to support it anymore. you know, like gen one iPhones, if you have a gen one iPhone, you're, you're host. So that's, that's the right to repair, um, kind of, uh, in a nutshell from my best, my understanding. And I get it, you know, being a software professional myself, like I don't want to support code that I wrote 20 years ago, but you know, some of this stuff, has secrets in it. How do you, how do you handle that? And I, I, I don't have an answer because I, I feel like this is one of those unsolvable problems that, um, I don't know. Well, it's one thing to not put out new releases. It's another thing to actively prevent people from using a product that they paid for. Like that feels bad <laughs> yeah well i mean that's one of the reasons why i moved off of apple um because yeah. they kept they and kept obs anyway. obsoleting they kept obsoleting the hardware 
and then said, Hey, we're not, you know, if you're not on this hardware, we're not going to support, you know, operating systems no longer going to support you. Like I could keep using it, but I'm susceptible to everything on the internet after that, you know, I'm not going to get any new updates. I can't, I can't go to anybody that's going to support the operating system that may take it another, you know, may fork it and go a different direction. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of possibilities there and lots of, lots of scary, scary things too. Um, but yeah, and I don't know, I don't know what consumer protections are in place really. I mean, is this something you say it's a movement? Is it, um, you know, are we talking like legislation is yep. being crafted or what? Yep. Legislation is being crafted. Okay. Right well, to repair. Let's see. You know, I, in my opinion, the laws don't tend to keep pace with, with innovation. So active you know, I, legislation in 2019. California, Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, like it's all of them. Okay. Um, California becomes the 20th state to consider right to repair. So what they're hoping for, I, the, uh, as I'm reading this, I'm remembering um, there was one, there was one, uh, con there's one state and I want to say it's Iowa that has been famous for these type of cases that I believe um, if I'm remembering this right, you know, I might have the state wrong, but they sued to actually have the right to repair a car, which basically gave birth to the whole auto industry of being able to have secondary shops, parts that aren't OEM parts, all this stuff like that, that, uh, that law, that, that, um, that decision made, made this, the whole secondary car market possible. And they're that same, I guess, argument in the, at the same courts is being made right now. And I think all of these, because once it, once it gets passed, the belief is once it gets passed in one state, all companies that want to do business in the United States have to not only, you're talking about building two different apparatuses, right. one for Iowa or whatever state gets it passed and then everybody else. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that. So the hope is that whatever state is it's being challenged in right now will win and thus giving everybody else the, this, this idea of right to repair. Now, how to solve it? I don't know. I, I mean, I, this is bringing me back to, uh, when cell phone companies, uh, wanted to, uh, whenever you switched companies, you had to get a new number because it was really hard to swap yeah. numbers. And, right. and meanwhile, you know, landlines were like, wait, you just, you just tell them over there that they're allowed to have the phone number. Like this isn't, this isn't rocket science. And so cell phone companies wanted to make a big deal about it until they passed laws that said, Oh no, you got to support it. And now it's nobody even knows that that was yeah, a thing. You don't blink an eye at it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'll say the industry is, still very new and we're i think we're all figuring it out together you know and i can see both sides of the argument to be honest um i think you bring a good point that as a as a professional developer yeah i wouldn't want to have to support version 1.0 when i'm on version 20.0 like that's that's not fun and then and you look at the the, the percentage of like like we were doing uh, web work and it was like, oh, uh, do we have to support Internet Explorer 8? Yeah. It, it constitutes 0.3% of the market and um, and we have to go through all these hoops to, to, to make that available. Or we just put a message on the screen that says, hey, get a new browser. We, sorry, our platform just isn't for you. Um, 
you know, our, our customer determined, yeah, probably makes sense to, to, to save that money and not worry about that percentage of the users. We can, we can work around that, you know, maybe they're trying to take the same tact. I, I just think like shutting people out of, of, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, we're, we're no longer going to fix this thing for you if, or we're no longer going to provide you updates. It's another thing to like disable it and turn off the thing that you paid for. Like that's, I, <laughs> if that was the case, you know, we wouldn't have classic hot rods driving down the street either, you know, like they would, they would all be gone because they outlived their, their, their lifespan or what have you. And that's, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> software. I mean, software is in everything now. So, uh, this, this is an industry, but this is not the end of this debate. I'm certain. Nope. We've both been around for a while being developers. I mean, we could potentially see the, a 20 year lifespan of a product that we wrote, but, um, you know, it's, I see it's kind of rare where uh, a, uh, an engineer, particularly a software engineer hangs around on a project that long. Typically what I see is that, um, people are changing jobs every few years, um, or they're changing roles. And that's where I saw an article recently about, um, about this. And it seems like when you see one, you start to see them everywhere, but I, for a time, I was seeing a lot of articles around the the notion of the 10x developer, and um, and it was the first time I'd heard the term used in that context. So I, I naturally had to see what this was all about. Notionally, have you heard this term before? Um, I, I think you mentioned it in one of our other talks. Okay, so the 10x developer is a developer who is effectively 10 times more effective than a, a standard developer, whatever oh, that, that's me, whatever that benchmark is. So, <laughs> so like a 9.5, I think maybe. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I got a lot of issues with the whole, the, the notion of, um, of what a 10 X developer is and even how, how you come to that number. But oh, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me keep, keep your thought. So I just, I have this visual now of, um, guys during uh, a code review and that you just go around the room and they just they're just holding up these little cards and you're like nine eight <laughs> like the dunk contest <laughs> yeah well you seven have that opinion but i'm a 10x developer there so we're go. gonna do it my way right <laughs> yeah, I mean, so i mean the, the whole notion is is flawed from from a number of, of reasons one in my opinion like how do you even like where else in this, in the industry, do you have, you know, level up, um, uh, professionals, right? Like, Oh, no, my doctor's only a four X doctor. So I, um, you know, I mean, like it, what, what's the expectation here? Like, you're gonna, you're gonna be able to only hire like five X developers and you're going to get so much more for, for so much less. Or, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost the opposite of, um, of, the, the thought of um, offshoring or um, you know bringing in a, a, a team of novices to, to to fill in the do do how how would the, how would it be described like 
just throwing a ton of people at it so that you know you solve a problem really really fast yeah so not well, so nine you need nine women to have a baby in a month yeah which i also hate that analogy but it, <laughs> that one gets thrown around a lot right so uh i mean i could i can argue that there is a there is a certain inflection point where you get to where it's like okay you know at this point we've got just enough people to get the job done but not too many cooks in the kitchen and that varies from project to project but i don't i've never seen a 10x developer i don't know that they exist i i've worked with some very talented people yeah he's pointing at himself for no, those I'm, on the on the podcast um, i was saying i couldn't hear you that's what yeah <laughs> <laughs> no the um but I, I, I've worked with some very talented people, but I generally just don't believe that, that a 10X developer is a thing. Well, I, as you were talking, I went, I looked up some of this stuff and, and found this article that, that um, um, you might've been referencing. It talks about the top 20% the top of people produce 50% of the output, but they also said it's not, it's not limited to just software. They're talking about, you know, professional, professional um uh football players um uh, writers um there are other occupations they were saying that have this but the the issue is is measurement like how do you measure a 10x developer um and as i think about it you know i'm wondering you know can you you know you talk about hiring somebody and how do you know if they're a 10x developer or not i kind of feel like if 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 in fact it does exist um you know, you're talking about somebody who's highly efficient on a new project. That person's probably not going to be a 10x anything. So really a, a function of that is going to be time and familiarity with the with the subject matter, um, I think, is going to contribute to being uh, more effective as a as a whole. So I don't I don't know that you can hire that one guy or girl or whomever team of people. Um, and then, you know, it, it's mentions here a lot. This one article is how do you measure all this? How do you measure? All yeah. This stuff? So, so let's dive into that because what, what makes you productive and, uh, you and I have both been on projects where, uh, management looks at lines of code produced as a metric for productivity. Well, on a good day, I'll delete 10,000 lines of code and replace <laughs> yep. it with, you know, five lines of code. So for me. I feel far more productive. Now I have, you know, two, I don't need math, two, 2000 times less code to maintain. That's a really good day for me because now my project is that much more succinct. Have, am I less productive on that day? I would wager that I'm more productive on that day. Yeah. You've, you've reduced bugs. You've reduced uh, touch points. You've <laughs> right. I mean, uh, we work in the agile framework. Uh, I, I would say, story points might be a metric that you could use to 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 gauge productivity but um I mean, what other what other measures could you uh defects created i guess would be a, a metric that i've seen um bugs closed bugs closed yeah um what new features and functionality you've added story points is mentioned in this but that all comes down to estimations which sure. humans are inherently bad at estimations for example, I'm a 10x developer. I think Chris is think saying you're, no. You're you're bad at measuring too. <laughs> I continually say that software development is more of an art form than a yeah. than a profession. 
uh, per se. So how do you measure from an, from an artist's perspective, how do you measure their effectiveness? Um, you know, you, you almost can't do that. And so we're in the same, we're same realm of measurements of, you 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 can't measure creativity. You took 10,000 photographs. One of them is good in your, in your eyes. I mean, in my eyes, I was like, wow, those are 10,000 great photographs. They all look good. Like you, you see something different in, you know, what, what, what makes, what makes that quality metric work? I think that the whole argument is just toxic. Like, I don't, I don't feel like, um, it's fair to, to say, to even assign productivity, uh, as a measure for, for people against each other. Um, I, and I would say I'm probably more, uh, more productive, more effective than a lot of the other people I've worked with, but I don't know that I would want anybody to call me, you know, twice as good as Bill or Bob or who, or Bonnie or whoever I'm, you know, I'm working next. Uh, I would, I would say that there's more value in, I mean, if you take a look at the, the, at a, at a career path, which I was touching on, uh, in my segue here was most people don't end up sitting on a job for 20 years to the point where they can become a 10x developer, say for, for a certain, uh, platform, like you, your natural career progression would go to be, you know, if you started out on, uh, fresh, fresh on day one, you're a junior developer, then you go to mid to senior developer at a certain point, the expectation is you're going to start mentoring and raising up the quality of the team. And I think that's a more appropriate way to say a person um, has, has magnified their impact on a project is I could say I'm a, a 2x developer because I've mentored this junior developer to bring them to level up their skills. So therefore, I have shared knowledge and collectively our team is more effective together, but it wouldn't, I, you know, I might be less effective because I'm spending time mentoring, but in reality, I'm, I'm doing more for the project by doing those kinds of things. <laughs> You're building minions. Yeah. <laughs> mini me's and I'm sharing all my, my, um, all my knowledge. As you're talking so, about this stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, so if I mentor 10 people, does that make me a 10 Xer? Yeah, there you go. Um, as long as they all vote, don't vote you off the Island. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if, if it's even a, a solvable problem in, in that uh, to me, like I, I know you're a better software developer than I am um, oh, for, you know, for, things of Java and things of that nature. But, um, you know, I'm probably better at doing SQL database stuff and things of that nature. So it's like what, you know, to, to, to be, you know, maybe, maybe a peer review would be the only thing that might be reasonable to figure out if how productive somebody is, um, you know, a, a lot of these things they want to they want to have metrics and stuff because some management person somewhere wants to make a determination. You know, are you working as hard as you can? Can I get more out of you? I, obviously, the higher ups want more, more, always more. Um, they're never right. satisfied. So, and I mean, you can kind of get that from a business perspective. Um, but 
as far as like being able to put your finger on any of this stuff, like I said, I still comes back to, you know, an art form and how do you, how do you, how do you put a, a label on that? You know, a lot of people put a dollar value and that, that makes you a 10 extra cause you're, <laughs> cause you're making the most amount of money, but it's like, okay, well, you know, what am I getting for my money? Well, um, you and I, we've both read the Phoenix project and we both really enjoyed that, that book. Um, I enjoyed it so much that I actually give it to uh, prospective customers and, and people that we work with who are kind of facing um, facing some similar challenges to to what um, what is outlined in the book. Effectively, uh, a, a guy comes to an organization that's got a whole bunch of software production problems and is facing um, near catastrophe, you know, from a business perspective. And he's, he's got to kind of try to help right the ship and get them headed in the right direction. And the example in, in that book is they've got, you know, one, one, I'll say 10 Xer, you know, some one, one developer who solves all the problems. He, this guy's got like all the answers to all the questions. The problem is that that's, he identifies that that person is the bottleneck in the process. So is, is a 10 X or even should they exist? Is that maybe an impediment to, to the quality of a project in the first place? I, what do you think? I don't know. Well, I was going to say it, it, um, you know, it leads to what you were just talking about, be, you know, being able to bring up your team as a whole, you, you definitely don't want to be that, uh, impediment and you can kind of see, hopefully you can see that, um, being the being the one person that knows how to uh, troubleshoot the database and uh, stand up a, a messaging queue system and um, is it is the only one that knows how to check in the code right and get the build to go and you know having to, being that one bottleneck I mean you're you're one going to be super busy all the time and yeah. you may end up with this fallacy that you're irreplaceable. Um, I think the business will find out soon enough, like how quickly we can adapt <laughs> in, in time of need as they, as they do in that book, uh, that I don't even know that you'd want a 10 Xer if again, if they exist on a project that's not in a capacity to bring up everyone else because you, you just, there's too many things for them to be involved in that they become that bottleneck. Yeah. Um, I mean, from my perspective, I don't want to be the keeper of all the secrets. I don't want to be the one that everybody's knocking on my door because I'm the only one that can solve these problems. Cause guess what? I'm not going to have any time to solve anybody's problem because I'm just constantly shifting from one crisis to the next. And what happens when you go on vacation? Yeah. Well, there's no such thing because you're, yeah. you're the, the keeper of, of all the keys. So it's, from my perspective, I'm constantly, somebody said it and I read it somewhere on like LinkedIn and they said, I'm, I'm trying to work myself out of a job. So I'm documenting all of my processes. You know, if, if, if it, if I'm the only person who can create database tables in the database, then I'm definitely writing down all the things that, that, what that process entails and I'm putting it somewhere like on our project wiki so that now if Tim needs a database table created, I can just point him to the wiki and he can try to solve that problem himself. And now I'm free to work on something else. So I, from my perspective, 
just holding I and I it took me a while to come to this place because I I wanted to I wanted to be the guy that everybody goes to. I wanted to be the keeper of I wanted the job security. I wanted to be the best on the project as as a as a more junior uh, engineer. Now I'm the total opposite. I want I want all everything I do to be documented. I want everybody to be empowered to to do things that that I'm able to do. And I'm I'm much more focused on I would I would put my team ahead of myself anytime. Like if, if, if the conversation ever came up, you know, how productive are you? I say, well, I'm only as productive as, as my team. Like I get more pride out of bringing somebody up and be like, Oh, look what they did. Yeah. That, you know, they, you know, the, the business might want to give that individual accolades and stuff like that, but it's like, you know, in the end, you know, it might've been my suggestion to do X, Y, and Z and they implemented it, uh, in a way that made sense and everything else. It's like, you know, that's that, that now becomes a point of pride that, you know, even from a team perspective, I, I don't generally tend to go into meetings and be like, Hey, I did this and I did that. It's the team, you know, when we do demos and stuff at the end of sprints, it's like, Hey, look what, look what the team did. Yeah. Um, even in my emails to, to customers, I'm, I, I, everything is we, it's yeah. never I, because I don't, one, I don't want to be the person that they call when something goes sideways, I want them to feel comfortable, you know, with anybody who's assigned on it. I don't, I don't want to be that indisposable person that they have to have to solve all the problems because at a certain point that just can't scale. I can't. Yeah. I get, I get, I, I get that. hyper, hypersensitive when somebody's like, Oh, I have to call Tim to solve this one problem. It's like, no, can you, can you please send an email to the team, please? Mm-hmm. Like I'm very cognizant of, like, um, you know, that's one of the things when I come on to a new project, I make sure we have a team distribution list, um, email because uh, you, there's a team here. Anybody could answer some form of a question. Um, you know, Hey, how do I do this? I'm not sure, but I can, you know, we can look at it or something like that. You don't want to just be <laughs> your, your inbox. You don't want your inbox full of only questions directed at you. And right. Well, uh, all right. Now devil's advocate. But All Tim, right. I'm a lone wolf. I'm the only developer on my project. I have to be as high a level developer as possible. What do I do? You still need to document it and stuff. Hopefully you can bring along other other people or kind of uh, delegate some of this to a junior person of some sort or maybe some other business, business process, business user. Um, uh, I don't know, make sure you're... I mean, one of the things I'm... I'm famous for doing is if you ask me for something once, uh, I, I might do a one-off solution. If you ask for me again, I'm pay, I'm making a note to say, okay, they've asked for this twice. Third time, I'm like, all right, uh, we need to develop a solution for this because I only have so much time in the day. Um, to so I need I need to give you a tool that you can do this so I can do. <laughs> so I can do the thing you're paying me to do. So, um, that's kind of the approach that I have, but, um, no, I agree a hundred percent. You know, you still have to document, you still have to do all the things that you do as a member of a team. Yeah. But you, you have to, for the same, you know, for the same reason you said previously, you're, nobody is irreplaceable. So at a certain point, you know, you're, you're going to want to go on vacation or you you might want to move on to another project or, you know, it doesn't serve your 
customer very well to take all your secrets with you. And then, oh, you know, I really got one over on them or maybe, you know, maybe they'll have to, maybe they'll have to pay you a premium and bring you back to like consult and solve those problems. But then you, you're doing it from a, from a strong arm position. You're not doing it because they, they love you and you're so great. They're doing it because they have to. And that, that just kind of puts a cloud over the, the, the engagement. Oh, it's funny. You're talking about some of that stuff. And I was thinking I had never been, a, been single on a project, but the last, uh, the last job I had before, you know, you and I went into business together. Um, it started out as I was a single, um, they had fired, they had a developing team of three, possibly four people. And they brought me in. They weren't even there to train me. So you were four X. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was, well, I, I was in over my head at that point. Even, even lone wolf doesn't still has some, you know, you're still doing work for a business, right? Or yeah, for a business, let's say for the sake of argument, you, you're not completely alone. I mean, the requirements have to come from somewhere. You're going to report to some sort of management structure. There's so even even though you might be the 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 person who's dedicated to putting fingers on the keys and 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 making things happen, um, you, you're still going to have some sort of support infrastructure there somewhere, and it and that's you know you still have to have those conversations with people and and you know even though they might not be technical members, you know I'll say say rephrase that even though they might they even though they are members of your team and they might not bring technical acumen to the team, they're still members of the team, you know, and you still have to treat them as such and, and do all the team things with them. And those that's, that's communication. That's, that's, uh, you know, planning it's, it, it, you know, managing expectations, all, all those things have to happen regardless of if you're on a team of 200 or a team of two. Yeah. I know, you know, the thing that's, st that still comes up, day you know day in day out i think for every for every retrospective we've had since you and i have known each other that i'm aware of communication it seems to always be one of those things that comes up every single sprint hey i mm -hmm. wish we could communicate more i wish we could communicate better hey we could probably do something a little bit better on x y or z from a communications perspective so communication to me is like top 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 you know, you got to be able to talk to your business. They have to be able to communicate to you. You have to be able to, to, uh, bridge that gap between technical and non-technical. Um, all those things when you're a, when you're a solo person, um, you know, on that, again, on that, on that one assignment I did, I did have, uh, my, my, um, the person I reported directly to, he was highly technical, but not, uh, from the perspective of writing code and stuff. So he had to help me kind of follow the breadcrumbs to coming up with being able to be productive. It's funny now because I just talked to that guy yesterday. They now have four, I think they have four developers, but they've been through about 10 since mm. I left. And the things that are still there are all the things I put in place. It's my documentation. I, you know, I enforced you know, check-in code policies. He was able to carry on that information that I passed to to the organization when, you know, at that time was like, hey, how do we, you know, they weren't even using real version control. So like I introduced Git to them, 
you know, how do we do get, I documented, you know, and so that stuff to my knowledge is being passed down to all these other developers, even though I haven't been with that organization and was it four years now, um, they're still, they're still following a lot of what I was able to set out and had the previous team done that I would have been able to, you know, follow that process. So, I mean, all this stuff, I, there was a person that was there prior to me that had the lone wolf mentality and didn't document a lot, didn't write any tests because he's going to be the one fixing them anyways. And you know, all that stuff was not valuable. Well, you, you may not be there forever. And then now what? So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say future proofing, but looking out for yourself and others in the future, <laughs> you know, your, your future self and your future team will benefit from you doing these things today. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a function of what a 10 X developer um, could potentially be is, you know, what, you know, what did you do today? That's going to benefit you tomorrow. Um, and then, you know, those things go uh, for granted. Cause I'm certain that the people that come in there now are expecting, you know, a, a fully functioning, um, development platform and stuff. And it exists now, but it didn't when I showed up. Right. Um, and I, like I said, I know the mentality of the guy that left, um, was I'm the one that's here. So I'm the one that gets to, you know, I, they didn't care from that. So perspective. I would say rather than claiming, cause I, I, I truly don't believe in the, the 10 X developer thing, but I do believe that uh, developers can vary in levels of quality. So there's a book called the pragmatic programmer. And I think everything you're describing is, is done from a place of pragmatism rather than, um, as being twice as good as somebody else. Is that my so, personal hero book? Is it written by Neil Ford? Is that the pragmatic programmer? I don't recall. It's been 10 years since I read it, I think. So I have to, I have to circle back and check on that one. We'll throw it in the show notes for, for people following along at home. But I would say, you know, doing the things like you just described from a place of pragmatism, um, you know, implementing coding standards, if you don't have any, adhering to the coding standards, version control, uh, just um, documentation, testing, the, the things that are are typically um, <laughs> either overlooked or omitted for, for the sake of going fast or uh, just trying to get it done. Um, all, all of that ultimately makes for a better member of the team and makes for a, for a better product at the end of the day. And those are the kinds of things that, that we really, um, really harp on and, and, and try to um, differentiate ourselves by doing them. Well said, sir. All right. So 10X programmer, not a thing. If it is a thing, please introduce yourself. I haven't met one yet. How you doing? I'm Tim. Yeah. Well, this has been For Love of Code. Thank you very much for joining us today. You can find us at forloveofcode.com. That's F-O-R, loveofcode.com. And we'll have links to all the places where you pull down your content via YouTube and all those podcast streaming platforms. 
this episode and every episode is brought to you by Prime 3 Software, where Tim and I write some awesome software every single day. And we thank you very much for joining us. Be good to each other. Get back to work. See you, everybody.